1: welcome everyone this is your podcast new books in economic and business history i'm your host javier mejia from stanford university and today i have the great pleasure to be with elizabeth anderson she is uh, an assistant professor of sociology at new york university abu dhabi she holds a phd in sociology from northwestern university and she wrote a, a book that has been recently published by Princeton University Press, which is called Agents of Reform, Child Labor, and the Origins of the Welfare State. We're going to be talking uh, with her about her career and the book. So let me say hi to her. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Thanks all for being here.
0: Hi, Javier. I am doing great. And thank you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast. I'm excited. To I'm be very here.
1: happy. I'm very happy that you accepted the invitation. I had a great time reading the book. Uh, it has a large set of interesting um, elements to discuss. So we're going to get to that in a bit. But before that, I, I would like to hear more about you. I had the fortune of being your colleague. So I I know you, but probably some of our uh, listeners don't. So why don't you tell us um, where are you from? Where did you study? How did you end up being a scholar? Uh, tell us a bit about that, please.
0: Okay, okay sure. Um, so I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, um, which is you know the capital of Virginia, medium-sized city. And I went to... Uh, city public schools, um, and then uh, got a scholarship to go to college at the University of Chicago um, and ended up majoring in sociology and Germanic studies. Um, after college, I did a two-year master's program in social service administration, which enabled me to get a an actual job. Um working for, uh, it was then called the general accounting office. Um, now it's been rebranded as the government accountability office in Washington, DC. Um, and there I was basically working on writing, um, government reports on issues around education, um, and welfare income security and, uh, and uh, workforce training, these kinds of sort of social policy issues. So I got some real world experience, you know, learning about policies and policy implementation. Um, But I eventually decided that it was time to go back to to grad school. Um, I wanted to have a little more autonomy and ask different kinds of questions, sort of more intellectual questions. Um, Yeah. So I went to Northwestern, got my PhD in sociology, took nine years. <laughs> uh, and then after that, I came here to NYUAD. This was my first academic job. Can, so. can, can
1: I ask you something about your prehistory as a um, real person in the real world? How, how much... <laughs>
0: Only for two years. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, that's probably
1: more than what most scholars actually um, have for Mm -hmm. their entire lives. Like I'm always a bit, I don't know, surprised or puzzled by the fact that most of the people generating the knowledge that we consume have so little experience with with the real world. Do do you think (laughs) that your experience as a bureaucrat, or I don't know how you would like to describe your previous job... um, matters for what you do how does it maybe affect what uh what you do how you think or yeah. i don't
0: I think yeah i mean i think it probably does in various ways i think um you know this might come out in the book i i'm like ideologically very left-wing <laughs> um but in the book you know it kind of reinforced an idea that i had probably dating back to that time that what's most important in politics is to get stuff done, right? And to get stuff done, to move policy forward, you have to be very pragmatic. You have to make compromises, um, you know, um, that kind of thing. So I think maybe that perspective connects to what I learned in D.C., like seeing policymaking actually happen on the ground and seeing how constrained it really is. Okay.
1: Actually now now that you say that and I would like to know a bit uh, about your inspiration for the book because now it feels part of a very logical story, right? You had this right. experience and then it feels normal that you would write Well uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh I mean, I think I really started getting in social, getting interested into you know social um, policy issues, issues of inequality and social justice when I was really young. Um, this came from my parents. We talked about these kinds of things a lot. Um, the city that I grew up in, Richmond, Virginia, uh, in the late '80s and '90s, um, was going through a lot of problems. There was a lot of poverty and a lot of inequality, a lot of um, racial inequality. Um, violence, a lot of drug violence, urban decay, all these things. These were things that as a high school student really interested me and concerned me. Um, But it wasn't really until I got to college, U of C, when I started gaining some of the theoretical tools to think about these sorts of problems. I mean, from the book, you might notice I'm very interested in real world problems. I'm also really interested in theory. Um, And That I got from my education at the University of Chicago. So the first book that we read in college was actually The Wealth of Nations. (laughs) And the second book that we read was the Marx-Engels Reader. Um, You know, so right off the bat, I got these really powerful theoretical perspectives for thinking about issues of, you know, inequality and poverty. Um, Right. So from Adam Smith, we learned that the free market economy is really great. Right. It. Um, it's the most efficient way to uh, produce commodities at cheap prices. Um, so from the perspective of the consumer, the free market economy is great, right? Because it raises the standard of living. It allows us all to buy more stuff at cheap prices. Uh, but then from Marx, we learn that the free market also, you know, turns workers into commodities, right? Workers' labor power is turned into an impersonal commodity and competition drives down wages. Just like it drives down the prices of commodities, it drives down wages and workers are exploited and they're alienated from their labor. So um, both of these things are true. And in college, I started thinking about this and thinking about like, how can we find the middle ground, right? How can we kind of balance our interests as consumers and as workers? Um, And the answer is, in my view, it's the welfare state, right? Welfare capitalism, um, where we have a free market economy, but it's reined in by regulations and it's tempered by, you know, various social provisions that protect workers against risks and protect their buying power um, and that reduce the extent to which the free market forces shape people's lives. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was in the coursework that I took at the University of Chicago that I started thinking about these things theoretically, but also practically, right. I got that MA, um, and social service administration and did the work in Washington. Um, and then when I went back to school, when I went to grad school, I really started getting interested in the history of the welfare state, right. So what were the origins historically of these kinds of policies? Where did they come from? You know, what did people think they were doing when they created these policies? What were the motivations behind them? And how did they actually come about? Um, What were the political processes involved? So those were the kinds of questions that kind of have motivated my work, you know, since that time period.
1: Right. Let's get then into the details of that, right? Because your book has this very provocative... Uh, thesis, which is that the origins of the welfare state are in the child um, labor reforms, right? So mm-hmm. maybe why don't we start by describing what those reforms were and why do you see in them the, the, the seed of mm-hmm. what now we know as the welfare state?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, the insight really came to me really late. <laughs> you know. Think Looking back, it seems obvious that that's what I would need to say. But I didn't really have the courage to say that the welfare state began with child labor laws until late in, in the process of writing this book. I was just kind of applying welfare state theory to my cases and kind of feeling uncomfortable about the fact that I wasn't talking about what most welfare state scholars talk about. I was talking about regulation, worker protection. Most welfare state scholars talk about social provision, social services, and I would feel like, this does this fit? And then I realized, you know, it really does. It does fit. Um, we just need to not even redefine the welfare state. We need to pay attention to parts of the welfare state that we have been ignoring for a long time. Um, so the origins of the welfare state. Um, so, you know, there's the story that Polanyi tells In the great transformation right that uh the modern welfare state um came in response to the economic liberalization of the late 18th century and the early 19th century right so there are these major changes the in europe the power of the guilds was broken or severely uh, curtailed um traditional relations of mutual obligation between Masters and apprentices, or between landlords and peasants, these were all increasingly replaced by free labor contracts. Um, and this was true in the US too. There wasn't a guild system there exactly, but there was an, a system of apprenticeship. Um, but this also increasingly dwindled and was replaced by free labor contracts. So workers were now free to move about, um, they're free to work for whomever they pleased. Uh, employers were free too. Right? They could hire and fire at will, and they didn't owe workers anything uh, more than their contractually agreed-upon wage. So labor power was becoming commodified, essentially 100% commodified, and, pe- and more and more people were becoming completely or largely dependent on wages for their surv- survival. So this led to a lot of vulnerability, a lot of precarity among working people. Um, But as Polanyi argues in the book, even as those older regulating institutions, those institutions that were rooted in um, feudalism and the guild system, even even as those were being swept away, new ones were being born. And he also points to regulatory welfare, right? Worker protection as being really at the forefront of this counter movement. Um, So... These were, so I'm calling it regulatory welfare to kind of underscore that this is welfare. This is part of the welfare state. Um, these are rules that um, put limits on the extent to which employers can exploit workers' labor power. And the first type of regulatory welfare was really these child labor laws. That's where it began. So in England in 1819 um, and a more you know expansive law in 1833, uh, in Germany, um, France, and, and some U.S. states in the 1830s and 40s, they started passing these child labor laws. And these laws all applied to children working in the new industrial economy, right? So they applied to kids working in factories and workshops and mines, um, and they all had certain features in common, right? So they set minimum working ages, usually, you know, something like nine, <laughs> Uh maximum working hours. And also, interestingly, they placed education requirements on working kids, which is interesting, right? Because in most countries, there weren't compulsory education laws yet. But if you wanted to work as a kid, you did have to get some schooling. So these laws were really the first um, attempt uh, by the state to intervene in that relationship between the new industrial bourgeoisie and the, and the free labor that it employed. And um, they entailed, you know, not the full decommodification, but definitely a little bit of decommodification, right? So they put limits on the extent to which workers' quality of life was determined by market forces alone, right? They put limits on the extent to which workers could be exploited by their employers. Um, and it was a really important breakthrough Um, Even though those laws weren't always very well enforced, even though they didn't necessarily always have their intended effect, I think conceptually they paved the way. They were a big breakthrough um, that paved the way for other kinds of labor protections that we take for granted. So, you know, what came next was um, protections for working women. Um, And then in the later 19th century, huge advances in occupational health and safety regulations And then eventually, you know, regulations on the labor of adult men. So the normal working day, the minimum wage, all that stuff got started there, I think, with um, child labor regulation. So the book is really trying to draw our attention back to... Regulatory welfare, which I think is part of the welfare state. It fits with our understandings of what the welfare state is all about, right? Decommodification, reducing risk. Um, That's where it began. And earlier scholars recognize this, right? Polanyi recognizes it. Karl Marx recognizes it. But today, welfare state scholars don't really pay that much attention to it. So I think that we should
1: i I totally agree and and actually, as someone that was not that familiar with the literature, I find it surprising that it was not that conventional view mm-hmm. right why why wouldn't it be yeah. Uh, so.
0: yeah yeah, I've thought about that i mean i think i I don't know the answer, but it's just speculating. I think that in the seventies and eighties. People started trying to measure the welfare state, like look at variation in welfare states across countries and in in terms of like the generosity of the welfare state. And this was almost always measured in terms of welfare spending. So why do some countries spend more on welfare than other countries? Um, And this was, you know, a a smart way to sort of conceptualize welfare generosity. It was also a very straightforward way, right? You just look at spending. But how do you capture regulatory welfare and that, right? You have to do it more qualitatively or something. Like you'd have to look at what's the content of the laws, you know, um, under how many conditions can people take time off of work? Like it would just be a lot more onerous, I think. So I think that's maybe why the welfare state scholarship started going in this direction of looking at spending on, you know, social provisions, social security and um, pensions and these kinds of things, insurance and these kinds that, of
1: things. That makes a lot of sense, actually. And um, now that you mentioned that the dimension in which um, this is a global conversation, right? And there's this general interest to understand this at a global scale and a comparative scale, I guess. Um <laughs> That's something that characterizes your research and your book specifically, right? So you do comparative mm-hmm. history. So I would like to know more about that. Um, it's difficult to do that. I actually have a couple of papers in which we tried to do that. And it's extremely difficult to not only get uh, gain familiarity with different contexts that requires a lot of effort, mm-hmm. But also drawing the lines, the appropriate lines to compare it, to compare different contexts is mm-hmm. very challenging. So I would like to know, like to hear your thoughts about what are the virtues of this approach? Um, why is it worth like all that effort? What does it bring to to the table? And why did you use right. it for this specific uh, question?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I I think it all depends on the question that you want to ask. What are you interested in? What motivates you? And for me, I was really interested in getting to sort of the granular micro level of, you know, how did people come to view child labor as a problem? Why did they think it was a problem? Um, I was really interested in the ideas that motivated child labor reform. Um, What were the sort of cultural discourses that that were in play? And what specific strategies did reformers use to get the laws passed, Um, especially because there was very little precedent for them to build on? So they did have to be they had to take a lot of initiative. They had to be very creative. Um, So I really wanted to get to know the actors involved as best I could and understand what motivated them and how they did it. Um, it's basically of a Weberian approach to um, historical sociology, right? So to understand large scale structural change and explain it, you have to look at um, the micro level processes through which the change comes about. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily you know, the only way to do um, historical research, but For me, that made a lot of sense that, you know, if you want to explain this major structural change, you have to look at the actors involved and try to understand, you know, what were the culturally embedded ideas that motivated them? Um, So this kind of thing required in-depth, qualitative case studies. Uh, But, you know, I also wanted to make causal arguments. So why did some places pass child labor laws while others didn't? Or why did certain laws get passed while other sort of rival um, options, why did those fail? Um, and why did the laws that got passed, why did they differ from each other in important ways? So those questions required comparison, obviously. And if you want, even if you want to just explain why things happen a certain way in one case, it always helps, I think, to have other cases in which things turned out differently to compare it with. Um, so that, that, uh, those are the reasons why I went the route of comparative history.
1: And, and why did you pick the cases that you picked? So you use seven different historical episodes, right? Well, would you mind first tell us which are these mm-hmm. episodes and yeah, why those and not the others?
0: Sure. Yeah, well, so I definitely did not plan to do seven case studies when I started this project, um, I started out planning to do four um, and so the first one that I did was the Prussian one. So I studied uh, this this case of um, Prussia uh, which was the first country in continental Europe. So England was the first country to pass a child labor law at the national level but Prussia was second the first country in continental Europe to do that and a lot of my initial theory building really came out of that case. And in particular, a within case comparison within that case where I compare a successful child labor reformer and an unsuccessful one. Um, and it's out of this case that I really uh, hit on this idea that it wasn't workers, right? It was middle class and elite reformers that that were the um, instigators, the driving force behind early child labor reform. And also that the their success really hinged on, you know, how they went about building alliances with other political actors and also how they went about solving problems and especially how they got around veto players. Um, so the main explanatory theory that I'm developing really comes out of that initial case. It's a theory of middle class policy entrepreneurship. Now, the next case that I did was 1830s Massachusetts, um, and I chose that case because on most factors that you might think are important for explaining policy outcomes, so institutional factors, social, political ones, economic factors, on all these factors, Massachusetts was pretty different from Prussia, right? But it still enacted child labor law around the same time that prussia did so the question that motivated this comparison was what was it despite all these differences what was it that massachusetts and prussia had in common that could explain this similar outcome um but it actually turned out that the main reason for reform in massachusetts was actually pretty was that it was different from so i didn't find that common factor i think uh And it took me a while to figure out how to deal with this, Um, but eventually I realized that after I did more case studies that the Massachusetts case could be used um, productively to kind of lay out some scope conditions or boundary conditions for that middle-class policy entrepreneurship theory. So the Massachusetts case helped me figure out what are some of the conditions under which these kinds of middle-class reformers and their strategies Um, are more necessary, were more essential for child labor reform to happen. Um, Where things got really interesting was when I got to NYU AD and I got some research funding, um, which is one of the nice things about working here, yes. Um, And I was able to add two unanticipated case studies. Um, And these were the The French case and the Belgian case. So I was able to add those cases because I could hire French speaking research assistants and translators. Um, And those two cases really did a lot of um, conceptual work. So I chose them because, again, um, I was thinking about similarity and variation, right? So those two countries in the 1840s were similar on a lot of dimensions that we would think of as being important for explaining policy outcomes. So politically similar, um, similar political institutions, similar levels of working class unrest, somewhat different economies, but um, not very, very different. Um, And so they were similar on all these dimensions, but France enacted a child labor law in 1841. Belgium didn't. It tried to. So there was a serious effort to pass a child labor law in 1848, but this effort failed, and Belgium ended up not passing a law until um, 1889. So closely comparing those two cases um, confirmed and refined the theory that had come out of that Prussian, that initial Prussian case, right? So it confirmed the idea that in this early phase of regulatory welfare, state development, child labor reform really and typically depended on a middle-class policy entrepreneur using um, various strategies to build alliances and being creative about solving problems and getting around veto players so france had a a reformer like this who had those qualities belgium didn't and i argue that's why the reform effort in belgium failed and we can talk more about that if you want Um, and then I'll just quickly mention the last three case studies. So I've covered four now. The, the last three are set in 1870s um, Imperial Germany. Um, there's one in 1870s to 90s Massachusetts and also one in 1890s Illinois. Um, and those cases I looked at because I wanted to explore how states move from just enacting Um, labor laws to actually investing resources into implementing and enforcing those laws, right? So the regulatory welfare state, is not just about the laws, it's also about administrative state building. Um, Over the course of the 19th century, policymakers figured out that these labor laws that they'd enacted in the 30s and 40s, they weren't just going to enforce themselves. They were going to have to invest in enforcement mechanisms. And so they created factory inspection departments in the last quarter of the 19th century. And the initial purpose of those factory inspection departments was really to try to enforce those child labor laws. Although, of course, their mandates expanded a lot pretty quickly. Um, So why did I pick the cases I picked? Well, I wanted to follow some of the earlier cases into the late 19th century. So I followed Massachusetts and I followed Germany into the later 19th century to see how that shift um, towards administrative welfare state building came about. Um, And then I added a final case, Illinois, uh, just because it seemed really interesting and really different from the other two, not least because the lead reformer in that case for the first time was a woman um, and not only a woman, but a social, like a radical socialist woman. So she was just so interesting to me. And I wanted to understand a, more about her and understand why was it possible for a woman, a socialist woman, um, to achieve that level of, of influence in the U.S. at that time. Um, but after I dug into these three cases of factory inspection reform, I, I realized that the type of factory inspection, the, the model of factory inspection that the three countries or the three states um, implemented was they differed in some really interesting and um, important ways. So I ended up focusing a lot of the analysis on trying to understand and explain that variation um, in, the, in terms of the model of inspection that they implemented. Um and we can talk about that a little more in a sure, bit. Sure,
1: sure. But now I mean now that you describe this entire um comparative effort, I'm um, I'm curious about how much of um of these reforms was somewhat associated with something in the air, right? What I'm trying to think is of course there are all these particularities that's what you very nicely explore in, in, in the book. But was there a set of ideas that during this time were making certain communities and we're gonna talk about this um mm-hmm. um reformers from the middle class uh, that push forward this these ideas in, in the cases that you do explore but why were they embracing these ideas in this point in time and why that was the case Mm -hmm. in so many different places, um, Mm -hmm. again, at the same time.
0: Right. Well, I think one thing that's interesting is that um, reformers didn't all have the same ideas. They, They ended up in similar places in terms of what kind of law they thought their country or their state needed to enact. But the ideas motivating them, the way they defined child labor, the way they understood it, why they were worried about it, varied a lot from reformer to reformer. Um, so in my early cases, uh, you know, we have fairly con- some, some cases of fairly conservative elites who are participating in this sort of discourse of... Alarm discourse of fear around you know the new industrial proletariat. Who are these people? They seem so dangerous. They seem so volatile. They're rioting. Um, their children are growing up completely uneducated, practically feral. We need to do something to discipline these kids to protect them. Sure, yeah, but mainly we need to discipline them. How are we going to discipline them? We're going to send them to school. Um, Then there were other people who looked at it really differently. So there is definitely, you know, and by the 1840s, there is um, a socialist movement in France. These ideas are uh, definitely trickling across the border into Belgium. The Belgian reformer, he wasn't a socialist, but he was very well read. Um, uh, And you know, was very aware of these these socialist theories um, that were coming out of France, and so he really viewed the labor problem, the child labor problem, differently. I mean, he was worried about social instability, social disorder, but he also was more interested in um, in the state investing in the sort of human potential of lower class children. Um, yeah, so he had a had a different perspective that some of the more conservative reformers in, um in Prussia and in Massachusetts didn't really share for them. It was really a social control issue. Um, for him, it was for this Belgian guy It was really more about investing in the potential, you know, and uh, and in the future of uh, the country.
1: Right. So let's get now then to this uh, idea that you explore and you describe as being inspired by the Prussian case, right, which uh, suggests that these reforms were not uh, driven by the working class, as probably one would expect, mm-hmm. but rather for uh, middle social entrepreneurship uh, mm-hmm. class, right? Tell mm-hmm. us so a bit more about that. Mm-hmm. That I think it's a, pretty interesting rather counterintuitive um claim so Mm -hmm. so yeah go ahead tell us more about that
0: right yeah so i mean i when i started this project i wasn't sure what to expect um but i too was surprised that the theory one of you know the theory that I don't wanna say it's dominant, but a very influential theory in the welfare state's literature is known as the power resources theory. Um, And it was pioneered in like the 70s and 80s by people like Walter Corby and Gosta Esping Anderson. And it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It argues that you're gonna see welfare policy development where in places where the working class is strong, in places where it's politically mobilized, where there are strong unions. Right. So in those places, you're going to see more generous welfare states, higher levels of social spending. And, you know, from that, I expected that workers would have had some role to play in these child labor laws. Um, And so they definitely did in England, um, which is the case that I sort of knew the most about when I went into this project, because there's a lot more in English, especially written on the British case. So there there really was a working class grassroots movement where workers protested and marched and organized and demanded child labor legislation. But I did not see the same thing in the other countries that I studied. Um, So, you know, I found that this power resources approach really was of limited applicability for making sense of child labor reform in places like Prussia or France or Massachusetts. Um, and those states, the working class really wasn't organized or powerful enough to demand child labor legislation. And from what we know, which is admittedly not very much uh, and, you know, fairly anecdotal, but from what we know, workers at that time in those places didn't really want restrictions on on their kids' uh, labor because they depended on kids' wages, you know, to survive. And they hadn't yet come to rec- to see kids as um, competitors that were like driving down wages for adults or something like that. I mean, the kinds of jobs that kids did were very different from the kinds of jobs that adults did. Um, and, and families, you know, they were poor and they depended on kids earning. So, so um, the impetus behind these reforms really wasn't the working class. It was these middle class uh, and in some cases, elite upper class reformers who took the initiative and made it happen. Um, Now, it is true that these reformers were um, worried about disorders that had been instigated by workers and the poor. So there was, you know, quite a lot of kind of ad hoc rioting and things like this that was happening in countries like France and um, Prussia. In France, it was a bit more organized, um, but again, not really around um, the issue of child labor regulation. Um, so you know these elite reformers, these middle class reformers were responding in a way to the riots and the disorders that were happening. Um, but they weren't responding to workers' demands, right? So rather, and I think I mentioned this earlier, what they thought they were doing was investing in social control. Um, so if poor kids could be taken out of factories and sent to schools instead, Then they would learn middle class values. And then when they grew up, they'd become, you know, peaceable, sort of passive good citizens that wouldn't be inclined to riot or, you know, commit other kinds of crimes. So that's the connection between working class mobilization and child labor legislation in the early period. It wasn't a response to workers' grievances. It was more like, oh, we've got these disorderly workers. What are we going to do to turn them into moral and peaceful citizens? Well, we better send the kids to school. Um, now in the later 19th century, so in those, um, last three case studies around factory inspection, it's a different story, right? So there, a politically organized working class definitely does factor into the story. Um, so in Germany, uh, there was a labor movement at that by this time, there was the Socialist Workers' Party, um which was formed in 1875 and they had put factory inspection on their agenda and they had proposed a law. But in the 1870s, they still didn't really have the power to make that happen. They were still a very small minority party. I think, um, when the, you know, in 1877, they, they won like 9% of the vote and had like 13 seats in the rice dog. So, Um, And they were also being actively repressed by Bismarck. And so they were still um, a small party that was marginalized. Um, So even though they did want child labor legislation, or sorry, even though they did want factory inspection legislation, they didn't really have the political power to make it happen. So instead, it was a conservative middle class reformer who took the lead and who was the one who pushed for factory inspection. Um, Now, it's true that part of the reason why he and others thought that worker protection was necessary is because they rec- they had come to recognize that the state needed to do something to improve workers' lives if it wanted to combat the lure of socialism, right? So elites were freaking out about socialism at this time. And you know, we probably, many of us have heard that story around Bismarck and his um, welfare initiatives in the 1880s. The idea was to lure, you know, to, to, respond to what they thought was legitimate in the grievances of the workers to lure them away from the socialist movement. And that thinking definitely played a role in this case. But it was more of a background role, right? It wasn't like workers pushing for laws and getting them. It was more like elites, again, sort of fearing workers, fearing socialism and trying to do things to um, reduce the socialist menace. Um now, in Massachusetts and Illinois, workers were more directly involved in the um, effort to create factory inspection departments. Um, they had more of a direct impact in those two states. Uh, so in both of those states, they organized petitions with thousands of signatures demanding a factory inspection department. They organized rallies and meetings, and they um, used their votes to elect labor-friendly candidates who promised to give them a factory inspection department. Um, So there, uh, the workers did play a more direct role, but I found that still, when you look at the actual approach to inspection, how factory inspection departments evolved, like how they actually um, administered themselves, uh, this was determined by middle-class reformers. So labor was important for sort of getting factory inspection off the ground. But when it came to actually shaping the implementation of these departments, um, uh, it was really the um, middle class policy entrepreneurs that had the most influence.
1: Yeah, so there, I mean, I'm thinking about a bunch of things that you mentioned, but there's one that I find particularly um, interesting, which is how you are able to describe the working class as um, complex um, entity, right? So I think that, and I can relate to a similar conversation in development economics, how we recently, as we've started to pay more attention to go to the field and understand better low-income communities, we've discovered that they behave not exactly as we would expect. So... Many people have um, recognized, again, going uh, into the field, that many families are supportive of uh, their children working, right? Because it's an important source of, of income for in, in a context yeah. of, of a very low low income. and um, And I think that frequently the narratives about the evolution of the working class are driven more by this foreign expectations of how they should behave and and you very Mm -hmm. nicely describe how uh, they behave in different ways depending on the context and 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 the motivations that they have Mm so that's that's Mm -hmm. that's super interesting
0: yeah and depending on the extent to which they're organized right i mean i think um it's only once workers got organized that uh, they came to have a certain understanding of their interests and they came to sort of recognize that, um, you know, having their children in the labor force as opposed to in school was going to be bad for the workers movement in the long run. Um, but it's also important to note that like the the leader, the, the, pe- the workers that participated in the workers movement and who organized to demand child labor legislation or, um, factory inspection legislation, these were not necessarily the people who sent their kids to work in the factories, right? Um, they were, they tended to be the workers that were a little bit better off. Um, and they were advocating on behalf of other people's children, um, so that's interesting too, right? There, a lot of the story is about people advocating on behalf right. of other people, not necessarily on behalf of their own interests.
1: Right, 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 right. Let's talk about that a bit then, right? So I think that, I mean, you describe fairly well the motivations of uh, those pushing for these reforms, but your book, well, it has two parts, right? In the first part, you describe why some of these episodes were more successful than others, like moving forward, those reforms. So I would like to know about that. What were these forces that made uh, more favorable mm-hmm. favorable these reforms and, uh, than others? Um, and then probably we should talk about the second part of the book in which you explore how... Mm-hmm more narrowly these things were implemented right and i'm also very interested in that let's start with the with the first uh, part of the question so why did you have some episodes that were more successful than than others
0: right okay so it all harkens back it all goes back to that theory of middle class policy entrepreneurship but I'll, i'll spell that out in a little more detail So um, among the states that I look at in the first part of the book, the ones that successfully adopted child labor laws in the first part of the 19th century were Prussia and Massachusetts and France, and the unsuccessful case was Belgium. So really the first part of the book um, kind of revolves around explaining why were those three states successful and why did Belgium fail? And, you know, I I try to make the case, and I think I successfully do, that really child labor reform was a possibility in Belgium in the 1840s. So Belgium had a very motivated middle-class child labor reformer, and conditions were actually very ripe for child labor legislation. So the king himself had asked for a child labor law, and the government had commissioned a major study. Um, And as part of this study, the chambers of commerce and other employers and other, you know, prominent physicians and politicians and other actors were surveyed to see what they thought about child labor, the possibility of child labor legislation. And there was a lot of support for it, even among employers. So even among the chambers of commerce and including among employers that relied on child labor. There was, um, you know, certainly not unanimous, but there was majority support for some modest regulations. So, including a minimum age of, you know, maybe ten, um, and some schooling requirements for working kids. So, I think that child that that um, Belgium really was poised to enact some kind of child labor law in the late 1840s, and the question is, what went wrong? And I argued that what went wrong was that the reformer, this lead reformer, really dropped the ball. Um, So he was the leader of the commission that did the study. But when it came time to propose a bill and um, argue on behalf of this bill, he really ended up ignoring the findings of the study and advocating for a law that was way more ambitious than what those chambers of commerce and other employers had said that they were willing to accept. Um, and the policy memo where he argued for the law, he you know had this huge study that he himself had put together, but he didn't quote or cite any of these Belgian actors who had endorsed child labor legislation Instead, he overwhelmingly cited foreign actors and foreign laws. Um, and he also framed child labor reform as a matter of children's rights, right? We need to protect children's rights. That's why we need these laws. But this was really, you know, it was kind of premature because at that time, children didn't really have rights, okay? I mean, fathers were the ones who had all the rights. Um, So he made a lot of sort of bad calls and the chambers of commerce really took him to task for it. So they were very politically empowered in Belgium at that time. They were given the opportunity to read and comment on his proposed bill and to read some of read the memo that he had written around it. Um, and they criticized the bill. They criticized it really strongly. Um, they accused him of being out of touch with economic realities, you know, basically calling him an ivory tower nerd uh, who just didn't get it. And they refused to support the bill. Um, and it was the opposition of these chambers of commerce that that tanked the bill. Now, in France, you um, Conditions were really similar in a lot of ways to Belgium, right? So this was the July monarchy, and uh, it was very sort of pro-capitalist, laissez-faire, um, just like Belgium was, liberal. Um, and in France, there were similar uh, institutions. So there are these chambers of commerce in France as well. They were similarly empowered to review and comment on economic legislation, just like in Belgium. Um, So economic legislation, in order to be successful, really did have to take these chambers' um, preferences into account. Um, Just like in, uh, in Belgium, France did a study. They surveyed their chambers of commerce. They surveyed their employers and found out what the employers there were willing to accept. And the leading French reformer, this member of the Chamber of Peers, Charles Dupont, he, he explicitly took these employers' stated preferences into account when he drafted his bill, and he made a big deal out of this, right? He, he noted places where he had compromised. You know, I, I wanted to set the minimum age at nine, but I feared that this would cause problems for the silk manufacturers, so I'm going to put it at eight, things like this. Um, and he also skillfully framed child labor reform as something that would further elite interests. So recall that the Belgian guy had framed it as an issue of children's rights, whereas the French guy was framing it as a way to make workers more productive. Right. If we send them to school, they'll be more productive when they grow up. Um, And we'll also make sure that army recruits are physically strong and vigorous and not like physically broken down from premature labor. Right. So the Belgian reformer was talking about rights. The French guy was connecting child labor reform to elite interests and the interests of the state. And so in these ways and other ways, he was really a much more effective alliance builder than the Belgian reformer was. And I argue, you know, France, it might have enacted some kind of a law without this guy, but it would not have enacted this relatively strong and comprehensive law that it did. Without this particular reformer's intervention, um, the front the the, Pr- the Prussian case is similar to the French one. Um, their reform was also led by a policy entrepreneur who was very adept at building alliances, and he was also particularly adept, um, determined, and creative about getting around veto players. So he faced a number of roadblocks. And he, you know, he did not give up in the face of obstacles. And he actually did a number of kind of risky things that bent the rules of legislative procedure to try to get around these veto players. Um, And he was much more effective than a rival reformer. So this is another case where I'm able to compare two sort of rival reformers and think about why one was more successful than the other. Um, So this rival reformer, he was you know, maybe you would think more politically powerful because he was a government minister, but he made a lot of mistakes. He used inappropriate frames, um, given the you know political context, the political uh, atmosphere at the time. He uh, failed to seize alliance building opportunities that came his way. He did not show willingness to compromise. Um, so once again, <clears throat> in Prussia, the child labor policy outcomes were really, um, attributable to this particular reformers alliance building and problem solving strategies. Now, uh, I think, you know, when people hear these kinds of arguments, they, um, often immediately think, oh, this is a great man theory of history. Right. This is a story about how some reformers are just successful because they're just so incredibly smart, you know, charismatic, so skillful, and others fail because they just lack these personal qualities. Um, and I definitely wanted to avoid that. Uh, I mean, I do think that there, some you know, political actors are more skilled than others for whatever reason, but I also wanted to look for a social explanation. Um, to try to account for this variation in um, the reformer's skill. And so I have this theory in the book that revolves around um, the architecture of policy fields and field position. Um, So I don't know if I should get into the details at this point, but basically what it argues is that actors that are positioned at the overlap of fields um, often find themselves in a beneficial position because they can bring ideas and resources from one field into the policy field. And this can this can be strategically beneficial in certain ways. Um, that part of the theory is more complex than that. I mean, I can get into the de- the details. I'm not sure if we should at this point. Right.
1: Well, I mean, I, in general, I think that what uh, some people could perceive as personal stories are... Nothing different than bringing light to how institutional design actually works in reality, right? And I'm personally quite interested in this issue, but how it is very easy to design theoretically institutions that should work. But whoever has a Mm -hmm. good knowledge of history knows that things in reality are much different. And they're different because of this specific contextual forces, right, that are related with who is exactly the person pushing for the reforms mm-hmm. and how exactly this person mm-hmm. uh, frames the issue. And I think mm-hmm. that's um, why your second part is, I mean, the second part of the book is very interesting, which is that you go and you explore how exactly these reforms took please, right, and how they were implemented and, mm-hmm. and how successful, I guess, they were in, in delivering the mm-hmm. outcomes. Um, would you mind to say a bit about uh, that as well?
0: Sure, yeah. So, like I mentioned before, the last three case studies in the book are looking at the um, implementation of factory inspection departments. Um, so these factory inspection departments were created in the last Order Well, again, England is the outlier, right? So they actually created factory inspection in 1833. Um, but uh, national factory inspection departments or state level factory inspection departments in most cases were not created until um, the later part of the 19th century. And they were created for the purpose of enforcing these child labor laws that had been enacted you know, 50 year, 50 years before um, although their missions did soon expand other kinds of things you know protecting women workers um, occupational health and safety became a big part of their mission and lots of other things as well um, So what I found and I didn't expect to find this but it became evident as I was doing the research was that the approach to factory inspection, Um, different across states in important ways and interesting ways. So I found that despite their many differences, Massachusetts and Germany both ended up adopting a conciliatory approach to factory inspection. So what do I mean by this? So essentially the aim was to educate or cajole employers into obeying child labor laws So inspectors in in these places were very hesitant to issue penalties. Um, In Massachusetts, this really amounted to turning a blind eye to child labor violations. Um, You know, there was some effort to try to, um, you know, persuade employers to comply with labor laws, but there was very little willingness to actually punish employers that thwarted that that um, that violated the child labor laws. In Germany, inspectors were actually legally deprived of any kind of coercive power. So the law specifically says, you know, they cannot use, they cannot issue fines. Um, they have no police powers. Their job is to try to reconcile capital and labor to bring them towards mutual understanding and to educate, you know, and persuade employers to, to obey the law. Now in Illinois, everything was completely different. So there, um, the approach to inspection was much stricter, much more punitive. I call it an enforcement approach to child labor regulation. Um, the Illinois inspectors led by this woman, Florence Kelly, who was a socialist, um, with the help of a number of deputy inspectors, half of whom were women, many of whom um, were part of the labor movement themselves. Um, They went after child labor violators with a vengeance and they arrested factory managers and they prosecuted them and they imposed many fines on them. And I argue that, you know, once again, these differences had a lot to do with the ideas, the, you know, the ideological orientations and the priorities of the middle-class reformers that designed the laws and actually implemented um, factory inspection, the administrative entrepreneurs that actually were in charge of these factory inspection departments um, at the beginning of their history. Um, Of course, other factors, Institutions, um, politics, working class mobilizations, these other things matter too. Uh, but we, what we need to do is kind of try to um, think about and identify how, you know, these more structural factors interact with the individual agency of these reformers. So in what respects was their individual agency important and what respects was their agency sort of constrained or shaped by these other you know institutional or political um or social contextual factors
1: this, this yeah this is um again like it's like answer that you uh give me opens a bunch of uh, many more questions and which unfortunately we cannot cover um now, but uh, I would like to ask you one final question um, to wrap up a bit our conversation. This is a question that I ask all my guests, um, which is why writing a book. We were talking a bit um, offline about this, but um, in most in most fields, in in the social sciences, there is uh, an increasing pressure for publishing. Um, Papers, articles in journals, right? And and the discipline is configuring around those lines, right? So most people are familiar now to read and look for um, articles in journals. There's a huge cost in writing a book. It's time-consuming, it's challenging, it's risky. Um, Why did you decide to write a book? What do you think about books as... uh, as a piece in the knowledge generation and in the discipline tell me i don't know i would like to hear your thoughts on this
0: sure um yeah i well i will say that um fortunately i think that in sociology which is my um discipline that um appreciation for books is definitely still there and that pressure to write articles isn't that strong, at least in the departments that I've, it's probably not true in every department, but it has been true at Northwestern and at NYUAD. So I've been lucky in that regard. Um, I mean, I think, you know, every researcher has to choose their own path and not every researcher uh, is, wants to write a book and that's completely fine. Um, I think it really depends on the kinds of questions that excite you, that you want to answer. Um, so for me, the book was absolutely the absolutely the way to go because I wanted to get into the weeds of history. You know, I really wanted to get to know these individual, these historical actors. I wanted to understand what motivated them, and I wanted to get to the details of how they went about making reform happen because I thought that that's how you explain why it happened if you can really pinpoint, you know, and identify all the different strategic processes through which they built the alliances, um, overcame the roadblocks, you know, circumvented veto players, then we can understand why this was actually possible. Um, and again, you know, I felt like in order to make any kind of a causal, or at least to, in order to strengthen the theory that I... Um, was developing out of one case, I needed to test it and compare it against other cases um, to see, you know, under what conditions does it work in other, condi- in other cases? Under what conditions does it not work? What are the scope conditions? Um, so for me, these were the factors that came into play uh, that pushed me towards writing a book, um, you know, but as I Mentioned to you before we started it took an awfully long time and not everybody wants to you know devote a decade or more of their life to working on one project and that's totally fine
1: <laughs> well you wrote a fantastic book um i must thank you for that i must also thank you for uh spending some time to chat with us but again thanks for writing the book i learned a lot it really changed my view of um the origins of the welfare state. I'm pretty sure that it will change the view of many others. Uh, so everyone out there, check it out, Agents of Reform. Um, thanks, Elizabeth. I hope to-
0: Thank you so much, Javier, it was really yeah, fun. I hope to
1: see you soon, hopefully in Abu Dhabi.
0: Yeah, that would be great.